we yeah we uh our our subconscious doesn't think we uh will clock out and so we <laughs> act as if we have an infinite surplus of uh or whatever i don't know that's that's all we have <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the only driving impulse yeah i was like thinking uh you know of how i could bridge my whole like you know um boring and earnest and painful discussion of uh this like illness and science um parlay it into some terms like you know the irony poison twitter freaks um that build brands are into and i was you know thinking about trying to prove that like uh that jouissance exists like in in good air in certain places like as a scientific <laughs> phenomenon sedona has a lot of jossant uh taos does and then maybe there are places that are uh uh they, they actually suck away jossant so i guess it's kind of like uh, combining organ and jossant but <laughs> it makes me think of uh ley lines do you know about ley lines vaguely heard about them but i mean it's like old old world folk mythology of uh folk understanding of the world as being crisscrossed by lines of magic like basically like fairy like fairy magic shit yeah which i I, I honestly kind of believe in (laughs) i think yeah or or maybe I believe in in the converse. Like, I think certain places are more cursed than others. Not yeah. so much that things are more, certain places are more blessed than others. But maybe some geographic locations are more immune to, like, the the actual poisoning of, you know, society and culture or whatever than, than others. Yeah, I think that... Um... I have all these theories about, I call it psychogeography now as like separate words because uh-huh. psychogeography is like the term that implies it's about psych, psychology and ambiance. And I think it's geography that's like, uh, has physical fucked up effects. So it's like psychogeography. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that would be, you know, uh, my my uh tagline if i was giving like some kind of like college course um uh, <laughs> yeah but um starts as a ted talk forms into a seminar yeah there i mean the southwest used to be like essentially something akin to like the tibetan plateau i think I don't know where I read that, but I feel like the affinities, there are affinities there that make a lot of sense. Like when you're in Taos, it feels, I don't know, it feels kind of second world. I mean, not third world, but like it, like New Mexico's has a weird combination of like the people that are new age, like boomer hippies and upscale people who work at like Los Alamos. And then just like a lot of it just feels so undeveloped. I don't know. I mean, compared to, like, neighboring states, like, 
there's nothing equivalent to Phoenix or Vegas in New Mexico. Yeah, certainly not in terms of development and urbanization. I mean, one could argue that Albuquerque is maybe the, the core, I guess, <laughs> uh, in in this framework. But yeah, putting that aside, it's it's still quite different than everywhere else in the country. And, and it's very American. I mean, it's, it's, that's implicit, I guess. Yeah. Some of these themes, uh, you know, the psychogeography, uh, my hot take about, you know, how disability is like incel-ness, uh, acephaly, my experience of acephaly, and also just all of my um, kind of uh, prophecies about how like the telos of all of this environmental toxicity that uh, brought me down and also pandemics is going to result in like in less than 10 years like tons of chronically ill young people but um that's like one part of it like just like the themes abstracted and then you know my literal story that I've been trying to tell in chronological order somewhat of getting mm-hmm. sick although it's like it might not end up being in perfect chronological order and then kind of the story of MECFS history and these political and economic battles around it um and and the science so it's basically those three things like my my narrative um the broader like MECFS narrative both political and scientific and then just uh hopefully later on these kind of themes that might be spun into tangents that it's made me think about i think like last time i was talking about how we had basically started doing um what people i don't even i don't even think i called it this but what people refer to as mold avoidance and mm-hmm. use that term loosely because i think it's mold is like shorthand for some kind of agent or agents we don't totally understand. Um, And people for the most part aren't having like a classic mold allergy where they're reacting to like the mold on a um, apple or like the mold or Mm. like a rotting log in like the middle of a really remote forest. So there's something like it you know something different about it and i also talked about getting um craniocervical instability diagnosis in like june of 20 what year is it uh june of 2019 and Mm -hmm. like the possibility to, to have a surgery that based on you know some anecdotes and some reasoning might lead to full remission so I should probably back up and and here's the thing like 
seriously like stop me if I say something like that's medical jargon or impenetrable um that for mm-hmm. the average person even because it's just like I've become so like isolated from humanity or the average person um and the other thing about this is like at this point I got a few diagnoses some I didn't even talk about and it's like I think a lot of people would be confused how could you have that many diagnoses and you know like Occam's razor isn't there usually like a simple unifying explanation I think that's because these sets of diagnoses are like really related to the extent that I would almost consider them part of like one syndrome but they like people with connective tissue disorders often have MECFS some of them don't some of them are like ballet dancers um like we don't know why some people's joints are just hypermobile in a way that is not pathological and why some of them are like bedridden and in pain but some people with like that phenotype then get a virus and then they have MECFS and then most people with MECFS have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome where they have this autonomic response where when they sit up or stand up their heart rate um, jumps. I mean, everyone's jumps, but it jumps like a huge amount. Um, and uh, most people with MECFS and connective tissue disorders have something called mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS, which is when, I mean, mast cells are involved in allergy responses, but it's not just allergy exactly they in mast cell activation syndrome they can release inflammatory mediators in response to a number of triggers even if you don't have like an innate allergy where you have an ige response to like a single allergen consistently you could just they can just um kind of go off uh randomly so to speak and i i don't think it's random but that's uh-huh. the understanding of it. And and what's an IgE response? IgE is like, I think it stands for immunoglobulin E. There's IgG, which is involved in antibody formation. But IgE is, this is a little bit even over my head, but it's IgE is the thing that starts a standard allergic response. You have an IgE antibody recognize like peanut uh, protein, and then the IgE uh, communicates to the mast cell, which is like a type of an um, innate immune cell, and locks onto it and then causes the mast cell to degranulate and release lots of inflammatory mediators one of them being histamine but that's the thing is this isn't just with mast cell activation syndrome this isn't just about histamine it would be a lot easier if it was i mean i take tons of his antihistamines because that's part of it they have this whole mast cells will release lots of inflammatory mediators some of them are like 
cytokines, which are proteins that are basically what make you feel like shit when you have the flu. They're like involved in inflammation in a more broad way. So you can't just take in antihistamines and fix this. Um, that was a little bit of a tangent about how when I say all these things, like up until now, it's like kind of would be a reasonable question. How could you have so many like diagnoses? It's like, I think yeah. there's some central relation between all of these that has yet to be a hundred percent uncovered, but I just kind of wanted to include that as like a note uh, before going on. I think it's important because for the most part, if one is healthy, one might not understand how contracting a certain virus or syndrome might perform this kind of compounding function as creating different sicknesses that are discrete and and still related to the initial infection. Um, yeah. But. And I, th I think like the thing about that is like, it's like, um, this is something I'm going to like harp on a lot. If I, you know, if I ever recover and can do enough activism is that biologists and doctors need to think ecologically, both on the micro and macro level. Cause I think that's like, not just ecologically in the sense that there are, ecological problems causing health issues but ecologically in terms of thinking you have a complex system and you can have cascading downstream effects from a number of or from even like one trigger you know if you can't understand why and a lot of people can't and think it's hysteria why someone could get Lyme disease and then years later be bedridden when they may or may not have active bacteria. If you can't understand that, it makes sense because some people can't understand how when they reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone National Park, the, the rivers changed. Regardless of any kind of platitudes about, or, or not even platitudes, just reductionist metaphors about uh, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically now of politics being downstream from culture, vice versa, those kind of aphorisms. Um, and everything, biologically speaking, is downstream from something else. It's, um, yeah. And it's downstream from ecology, basically. Yeah. All yeah. of it. it. It's not all internal. There, there are inherent and essential external factors that play a really significant role right yeah and the thing is that there are really strong ideological incentives to not look at environmental factors because it's just like um you, you can be like a really smart biologist and just not see i mean just because you live in civilization and you think that we're kind of in control of the environment rather than the other way around. You can just mm -hmm. not think of them as primary, even though like you look at like a lot of skyrocketing chronic diseases. Um, is it really, I don't, if you look at them in aggregate, I feel like, and I'm a lay person. So maybe this is dumb. I feel like, solely genetics doesn't make sense is like the factor yeah 
autism is one example and that's a you know that's a whole <laughs> can of worms yeah because <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't going to um because i'm not a believer in vaccines causing autism but it's a whole can of worms because some people think of it as not necessarily a bad thing or like just neurodivergence um which is like i actually you know i'd probably rather be autistic than have severe mecfs so i am like you know live and let live people should feel free to continue having autism if they want to but at the same time the idea that there aren't like um the idea of not viewing it as an illness you know could very well stifle progress into like research into what's causing it and um if there are environmental causes i think you could argue that it's not consensual for a baby to get autism um okay so yeah what i was saying is autism uh blah 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 caused by vaccines no <laughs> just um uh, coronavirus hoax 5g um yeah adrenochrome harvesting oh my god man i found like an incredible post on the adrenochrome subreddit this is oh man they're a little <laughs> off topic it, like the, go for it it's all pizzagate people like you know and so mostly they're against the use of adrenochrome but some of them okay <laughs> get curious about if they could to possibly mm-hmm. obtain some of the beneficial effects and it's like, I looked up the pharmacology of it and adrenochrome is just like oxidized uh, epinephrine or adrenaline. So it's like literally just like, first of all, you can synthesize it. Second of all, it's like it, what you get if you let an EpiPen sit out and it turns brown. Um, oh and, and it probably would just give you like a headache and like heart racing. Um mm-hmm vasoconstriction but they think it's the fountain of youth anyway um they think it's the fountain of youth but also that maybe it causes like psychosis and like you know whatever delusions of grandeur among the elite what is this shit that stuff makes pure mescaline seem like ginger beer man adrenochrome adrenochrome hmm I won't get into the gory details, but all I'll say is that, yeah, there's a post by one someone who in that subreddit who's like, so um, strictly with someone who's above age, but like 18, how would I harvest their menstrual blood um, <laughs> to obtain adrenochrome? <laughs> I feel like he was being euphemistic too, because cause everyone seems to think you can only obtain adrenochrome from like, frightened children um anyway uh that was just so great i mean from what i can tell adrenochrome doesn't really seem that useful no for any purposes it's not even like like a steroid it doesn't like yeah give you powers in any sense of the term right and also if you want to look at what the elites do um to like say 
healthy or whatever vital their fountain of vitality um jeff bezos just definitely does steroids like anabolic steroids yeah there's no way he does yeah and he's also adapted to the no hair thing whereas uh i'm pretty sure that um elon musk got hair transplants and Mm -hmm. could never live it down he has the small the you know small dick energy of someone who couldn't live with their balding i mean i don't blame him sometimes i think if i like started really balding and just like transition i don't like the idea of balding i mean i guess i just like you know i don't even know if that's gender dysphoria or vanity or just somewhere in between but i just do not want that well i was half kidding i don't think it's gonna get to that point if if he did, I would just be really mad at my dad um, for giving mm-hmm. me. And that's a real comeback to genetics type moment in a way that our main conversation is not. Damn. Okay. But as I was saying about like environmental factors and chronic illness, um, a lot of autism people don't like them studying it because like autism is not bad and blah, 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 eugenics. I mean, I do think there's like, it would be kind of ironic if um, if something that was like an environmental toxin causing issues, which is very much not like a eugenicist Darwinian argument exactly, um, it was not investigated because people were so worried about like the appearance of like eugenics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because it's like, I mean, most eugenicists seem like hardline genetic determinists. Yeah, they're they're essentially essentialists. It's it's genetics all the way. And people <laughs> have talked about how that's like a Protestant thing, like the idea that the genes will just like the kind of genetic determinism is similar to like Protestant ideas about like fate and or, or like predestination frameworks about genetics or uh, the idea that protestantism is behind everything bad <laughs> or um i think it's kind of on a spectrum like if you have um like if you have like parkinson's your genes are like until we have a good treatment almost destiny um but if you have like some minor variant there's just like such a spectrum of like how much genetics matters but my my like a big hot take on genetics um is that it doesn't matter um whether or not like you believe genetics play a a majority or like minority role in like uh in determining a person's health i feel like that in the this moment in time in history we have such an onslaught of environmental toxins etc that um it kind of creates a teleology in which genetics almost doesn't matter at all it's like a it's a filter which none of us are going to get through i think is what i'm like (laughs) not the most fit like like the like some people like I think I probably have 
genetics that make me more susceptible to this like toxic air stuff that make my connective tissue a little weaker than most people. Some people can just hang out in Beijing and be fine. But like I'm talking about 10, 15, 20 years out, we're going to have like a children of men scenario or like worse. Um, mm-hmm. uh, worse because that was just infertility, which is the end of the species. But like, I think that most people are going to be um, literally dumber. They're going to be weaker, more frail. Um, I think that like, we'll have a real catch 22 where environmental factors that lower like intelligence and executive functioning will make it hard to solve complex problems like the problem of stopping the environmental degradation. Mm-hmm. So I think if we if we ever get to like idiocracy, it won't be because of Mike Judge's like dumbed down idea that like dumb people are breeding too much. It'll be because we have like microplastics inside every cell. Yeah. I I think that's a those are two very good pieces of media to bring up and like place in conflict with each other because children of men is a much more realistic near future uh, depiction of the world than idiocracy wherein people can just kind of be stupid but still be healthy technically speaking um right and and like what is maintained is like civilization civilization becomes stupider but doesn't entirely break down whereas in children of men civilization persists but is at an ever more tenuous breaking point regardless of you know some kind of genetic pathology that um seemingly is irresolvable yeah I think I said this to you on a non-recorded conversation, but my like favorite, that's like a children of men and um, Mark Fisher's analysis of it, which I'm sure like uh-huh. probably, probably yeah. most of our listeners will have read. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but he's like the pop theory writer of like the sad boys and girls. Um his analysis of children of men was pretty good. It got me to watch it for one thing, but um, it's like an example of this pathology of abstracting everything that I think critical theory does. Cause he talks about it as an allegory for cultural sterility and it probably is. I mean, but on another register, like we probably will face a scenario like that like literally infertility Mm -hmm. not cultural infertility i mean maybe we're already there but like a literal zero birth rates or something like that um and so i think there's like a kind of pathology in in needing to abstract problems like that almost because i think this is my um pop psychoanalysis of Uh, maybe like leftist critical theorists here people are terrified of biological reductionism because they think that because maybe they don't understand biology well enough to understand that 
it's plenty mysterious and interesting. Um, and you can also have ideas about systems and like emergence that aren't reductionist in the sense of like viewing the organism as just like a bag of meat or like a bag of water and molecules. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's like that's not what I've taken away from almost any biology I've studied. Um, it's actually like, so I I don't know if that's why like a lot of leftist critical theory um, chooses to almost totally ignore biology. I think one of the only examples that I've seen contrary to that is like Berardi, and he still kind of uses it in vague ways, but he at least talks about like organisms and I don't know. I would say that there's been a sort of dichotomy instituted that really is sort of an irrational one where there's the impression that if you're on the right, your political, uh, your, your biological political perspective has to do with like white birth rates or something like that. Right. And on the other side, it's almost entirely unrelated. Oh, not entirely unrelated, but more, far more abstracted. It has to do with like notions of the Anthropocene and almost like a biological epoch that has all these kind of cascading political implications that ultimately redound to nothing when it comes to actual biology and science. And, and neither of those things seem to get out the, the sort of actual point which would maybe could be construed as more materialist. I think this is a good like uh, thing to riff on, but I, I don't want us to get uh, too off topic. Um, right. Yeah. No, I was going to bring it back to like, why I even care about this? That is a mm-hmm. good thing to riff on and it's easy. It's an easy target. Um, critical theorists, yeah. um, people with theory, mush brain worms. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I was like, like told you, I had been doing a lot of my own research, and I had eventually come to a point where I had a diagnosis of a structural neurological issue. June twenty nineteen, called craniocervical instability, which essentially meant that some way or another, uh, my cervical ligaments had become lax, maybe because they were damaged, because they. Um, Because I didn't have head trauma. And this caused brainstem compression because uh, there's both horizontal and vertical issues to the instability. But either way, uh, your skull sinks down and one of the bones that that makes up the upper two vertebrae has like a toothy projection that flexes backwards when it's uh, when your ligaments are too lax and presses into the brainstem. I, I mean, I think obviously it presses into the dura, the sac around the spine and brain, not directly into the brainstem, but either way it results in compression of the brainstem. So I discovered I had this like serious neurological structural issue. And anecdotally, there were reports of it being linked to MECFS, which is a more like a less well understood syndrome. Um, and I was offered surgery, but at the same time, like, uh, something that I hadn't talked about as much over the January to 
June of that time, I started to learn about um, like mold and environmental toxins and to think that that might play a role in my illness. So um, like basically when I watched the movie Unrest by Jen Brea, which I think I recommend to anyone who's listening to watch, um, it's really pretty good film. Um, she she has she tries lots of treatments and I think part of it is to show she wasn't cured by any of them when she filmed and she also didn't want to I don't think bias the audience in any way um, so she just very briefly showed her going on a trip to Utah Canyonlands and feeling a lot better but. Mm-hmm. but that's the first time I ever heard about anything like that being involved in MECFS, like environmental factors. And I mostly ignored it for a while because it didn't seem like people were doing the scientific papers about it. Um, later, I would kind of learn that that's a bad metric because the scientific literature is almost so scant that uh that the next treatment might be discovered more from an anecdote and then science that follows up on that rather than finding it just by scouring the literature. But at the time I was naive and I was like, that doesn't sound so sciencey, uh, you know, sounds kind of weird. Um, also expensive, maybe I, you know, relocating, whatever. So ignore that for years. And anyway, at some point in my deterioration, I just started to, you know, sometimes notice I would go outside and feel a solid amount better. Um, Not like cured better, but like um, less air hunger, more energy. And then I go inside and feel worse. And I started to like sleep with the window open um, in Vermont in the winter, which is like probably my room would be like 40 degrees and just have blankets to make up for it. And my dad would yell at me for, you know, making him use too much wood to heat the house, just like would be so angry. But it was just like, did like really help keep me the symptoms under control and um a little bit but mostly like i couldn't do a ton of experiments while i was like bedridden with the actual treatment so i was just reading up a ton it all started when i read about the history of um chronic fatigue syndrome as it's called um mecfs and in the u.s specifically that term and syndrome was created based on the 1985 or 1986 Lake Tahoe outbreak. There were no warnings. No signs in the fall of 1984 that life would be any different in Lake Tahoe than it had been in all the months and years before. For most people, nothing looked different. Nothing was different. But for some, a shadow began to fall over everything that was familiar. I was totally disoriented, stepping out my front door literally into the street 
and not know where I was. We had very bright individuals who had difficulty finding their way home from uh, the grocery store, getting lost in a small town. Things were shifting. I couldn't figure out if I was sitting at an angle or if the rest of the world was. And I learned about this all from just interacting with this guy named Eric Johnson, who's just a strange kind of intense character. But he was one of the people that was around during that outbreak and fully recovered essentially from what he called uh, molding, by which he didn't mean moving houses or something. He meant something way more extreme. He told me a lot about the Tahoe outbreak that, you know, isn't, people don't talk about the outbreaks enough in MECFS circles. I don't think it's like a historical oddity. It's this kind of still unsolved, you know, mystery that probably holds clues to the disease. Um, and I mean, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but like just the more I learned about it, the more there's this kind of almost like a Twin Peaks or like Lynchian vibe to it. Like just this strange thing happened in this small town in the mountains. And, uh, and then the government basically came there, left, denied anything of importance happened. Um, but meanwhile, like, re like some of the people from that outbreak are still sick or committed suicide or, um, it, um, still living in Tahoe and still sick. And basically what happened was everyone agrees that there was this particularly nasty flu outbreak. It might even be something like COVID by which I mean, people called it a flu, but it like it wasn't mm -hmm. that was like the nickname i don't know if they ever identified the specific virus it was something nastier and it went around incline village which i believe is on the south shore of tahoe and also or it might be on the north shore and also Truckee, which is it's on the i think it's on the north okay so incline village is on the north shore i think Truckee is on the south shore and the outbreak okay. ended up hitting both um Truckee's smaller um and I think Eric went to high school in Truckee um but lived in Incline Village during the outbreak I'm gonna take a little uh sip of a uh, juice to help my vocal cords here and uh give the audience some ASMR um and the title of this whole whole piece is Environmental Catastrophe um, and uh, Global Pandemics Will Cause You to Be a Sickly Victorian Waif, um, ASMR. No one will save you, ASMR. You'll lose everything you care about slowly. Um, and you won't even get over-the-counter opium like they did in the for victorian ailing children but um mm. yeah, asmr um yeah i'm i'm living with chronic illness and all i got was this lousy podcast asmr <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, essentially. So yeah, flu outbreak went around like a particularly nasty one, but and there were like a couple like kind of mini outbreaks at different paces, but regardless, everyone got like really sick in eighty five and eighty six. But the you know, that happens often, but these local doctors um that were just internists they weren't like hippie alternative medicine doctors and that's you know the kind of unfortunate disclaimer i feel like you have to make when you talk about stuff like this um almost defensively they were just you know regular family doctors they just had a slew of patients that you know months after the first like weeks they felt awful but yeah it's you know that's normal you have a virus months and then they're like what are we dealing with here uh you know these people still have almost like signs of an active virus they have like a flu-like very fatiguing illness but it's been like months um and this doesn't seem like mono in fact some of them tested negative for mono um and a lot of their labs initially were normal. This is the part that gets a little twisted because when they, uh, I think in unrest, it said, you know, they found normal labs. So the CDC just, you know, left. But they did a lot of thorough workups and some things were abnormal, like there were immune abnormalities. Regardless, it wasn't like a simple blood test that could differentiate these people from you know, just uh, someone with um, who just had a cold or something or controls. They called in the CDC, and the CDC, I guess, spent like a weekend in there, a weekend there. And I guess um, the story goes that there were a number of outbreaks in 1985 or six that were basically similar there's one in upstate new york and the cdc knew of all of these but they chose tahoe because they wanted to go skiing and they came in and they interviewed patients um and they talked to the doctors and they did almost no actual lab tests at all they just looked at the records and they talked and they basically left and concluded that it was First, they concluded that it was not a big deal. There's a lot more nuanced history, but they ended up concluding that it was hysteria, mass hysteria. And then, and of course, CFS advocates fought that, and eventually they coined the definition of chronic fatigue syndrome, but they deliberately left out a lot of the immune abnormalities observed in this patient population. Um, that doctor, the do- local doctors had found. They just wanted to kind of make it equate to idiopathic fatigue, um, remove any idea that there was like a dangerous, scary outbreak, you know, that it was contagious. They left and they, you know, dealt with it politically like that. But meanwhile, in the town, um, in Incline Village, people were still like really sick, like for uh, years out, and these local doctors were continuing to treat them essentially without help from the CDC. Yeah, I I, I was reading a New York Times article from 1985 earlier, 
And there was a figure there that at the height of it, I mean, it was something like 15 new cases a week and then following up with people who had been sort of the original case study, maybe a quarter of them, and this is all subjective, but claimed to have made a full recovery. Some of them had seen decreases in symptoms, but I, I think something like a plurality of them had continued to deteriorate. That sounds right. Yeah. Not really, uh, I don't know, any any kind of hysteria diagnosis, especially a mass hysteria diagnosis, I think should be very critically examined as perhaps being something else because there didn't seem to be any factors that would have precipitated that politically or or in terms of I mean I mean nothing had happened in that yeah. community. Well I think that it started off as people saying that that it was because Tahoe had some like I mean the but the thing is like Tahoe is kind of like Taos. Like there are locals who are not wealthy, um who just kind of live there. Yeah. Or it's like Cape Cod or whatever. Um, anyway, or like Aspen or something. Yeah. Uh, so that that was the only thin evidence they had to support hysteria was that they couldn't find anything in without. They didn't look very hard, and they didn't find anything. And also that um, there was some like yuppie woman. It got dubbed the yuppie flu um, that had it. But, you know, in later epidemiological studies, and this is important because I think there's just like so many axes um, on which the hysteria argument falls apart. Um, It's basically unfalsifiable, but at the same time, you can, it's still like one of those axes is like um, demographics, Um, you know. If you talk to like 90% of doctors, they think that this is um, a disease where wealthy white women have too much time on their hands and worry themselves sick. But if you look at epidemiological studies, not only is that not the case, there's a, there was a big one that showed um, actually that the prevalence of this illness in Nigeria was higher than in the U.S., um, possibly because what, of whatever bugs they have there, whatever, um, they nastier post-infectious. But, and that's just, that's just one issue with hysteria. Um, and I was going to, hysteria is a great whole topic, but, I mean, the thing you got to understand is that um, it, you know, we think it's gone away because of Freud. Uh, is thought of as like not influential to current day psychiatry, but they they do have hysteria diagnoses. They're just they just have different words for them, like euphemisms, uh, almost like it's called conversion disorder now, which comes from Freud talking about hysterical conversion of a memory or repression into physical symptoms. It's a like DSM diagnosis like an actual category still mm-hmm. um, hysteria. But I think, I think, so I kind of, you know, 
told the broad thing of what happened in Tahoe. Then I also got the story from Eric. I essentially began talking to him online at some point. And he's a very persistent, odd guy. At first, I thought he was a little bit of a crank, but it's like, a, I don't know, you know, that idea of um, the visual effect of uh, it, when someone looks better um, up close than from far away or vice versa. There's like some term for it. I feel like they might have talked about it in the movie Clueless, but Eric is the kind of person who you know, seemed like a crank when you just saw him ranting a little bit online. And the closer you examined everything he said, like the more sense it made. He's not some charismatic person who's trying to, you know, you know, like most uh, like actual kind of conspiracy cranks are like kind of charismatic, like cult leaders. He's almost the opposite, like a weirdo loner that, you know, might have, I actually think he, it's okay to say this because I think he might have mentioned possibly having some level of autism before getting MECFS. Um, so he has like low social skills to communicate this stuff, but extremely intelligent and actually had something to say. So, you know, at first I'd see him like arguing with Jen Bray on Twitter and be like, who's this weirdo? He's like, his tone is like way out of line. Like he's very angry. And, and then I, um, talked to him more in any way he so he was a member of the I guess a survivor so to speak of the Tahoe outbreak and a long-term Tahoe resident and his experience of it was that um, he had had some of what he recognized as a kid and adolescent as like moderate mold illness so I guess he's more susceptible than most people, but was still very ambulatory and lived a life. Like he, he went into the army. He said ironically yeah. that he thought, you know, the fresh air and like exercise would be good for him. But he ended up, um, he had, I think, some kind of engineering background or something. And he was a, uh, not during wartime, obviously, never, I don't think he did anything besides training, but he was like a nuclear missile launcher spe specialist, which um, sounds bizarre, but I've seen his actual credentials. So this guy that like is telling me about mold and CFS history had that, and it's just like, that's what I mean when it's like, uh, I'm talking about the weird Lynchian aspect of all this. So when you do that, I guess you also get chemical uh, warfare training, like bioweapon training, like decontamination and stuff. Okay. So this uh -huh. is where like this whole concept took fruit of, of extreme mold avoidance that I'll talk about later is, is that. And um, um, at one point was stationed in a bunker in Germany that was really moldy. It was like one of Hitler's bunkers, not the one where he died in. It yeah, I think like, it was a, it was like a bunker that was built as part of the taking of France. And so it was just this very moldy bunker in uh, some dank part of Germany. And I think Eric's theory that I'll talk about later is that mold, you know, in nature might be harmless, but whatever we've done to modify 
the environment, whether through selecting for nasty molds or through a direct combination of chemicals and mold, like like uh, part particulate pollution and mold, etc., becomes nastier. He thought they might have used some like really nasty gas in the bunker, and that was why the mold was so bad. So he was stationed there. It, you know, he noticed it made him really sick, but he managed to make it through. You know, training and get um, go back home. Um, but he talks about remembering how when you do like tear gas training or something. And this is something that's probably relevant to what's going on right now. He said, you know, people get a little lazy with washing off their gear and fully decontaminating um, in the way that they were taught to. And that just, you know, if you didn't do this perfectly and you just had a tiny amount that then just got onto your, got from, you, soaked into your skin or got onto your, clothes and then your hand and then your eye people just like start screaming because they just fucked up with this small thing and i think you know he told this to indicate that he had the idea buried in the back of his mind that small amounts of something could be really problematic uh, you know you don't have to live in a house where the walls are fuzzy with mold to be sickened by it necessarily um which would prove relevant to what he was figuring out later and so he you know like i said noticed throughout his life some sensitivity to mold but was fairly ambulatory and relatively well um and kind of just intuitively avoided it and then he went back to tahoe in like 85 to his like parents house to just kind of chill out and do some work i think and flu was going around and he heard it was like really nasty so he tried to stay like as out of town as possible like i think it had people scared as much as covid does now like the tour like the tourism was dropping off they were telling people to not say there was like a bad illness because people were genuinely scared of this at the time it wasn't like some laughable or stigmatized thing like chronic fatigue syndrome is like anyway um he went back there and he tried his best to avoid getting the flu but he he said he just like one day um was like chopping wood uh cutting logs above town uh with his brother or something and just like uh passed out totally um i think he said it was like a combination of reacting to mold um and like he finally caught it and then he was totally bedridden you know like like what i've described kind of just like total misery um crawl to the bathroom you know um not even walk uh had to have his mom take care of him and he was like a you know grown man like 25 or more older i think he also noticed i think that there's this geographical component to how this thing spread. This was an outbreak where it was contagious, but sometimes it wasn't. Meaning it was contagious, but then as soon as it left certain areas, it wasn't contagious. So people were getting sick from an infection, but the infection was kind of spreading through what Eric determined were bad zones, like um, zones that he felt bad in that he was so 
there's like a geographical pattern to it like micro-geographical not like the whole town of Tahoe was bad but like he could tell this person that got sick was in this apartment complex he knew was bad you know etc block by block a couple things contemporaneously were happening or like one of them was that at some point either before falling ill totally or after having recovered some I think Eric noticed this intense uh, cyanobacteria algal bloom on Lake Tahoe just like you know a bunch of green shit in the water all over bright green and a bunch of dead like fish and crawfish just washing up and this is like probably more than mold illness is like a known phenomenon the toxic like algal blooms it happens in florida all the time like red tide or whatever um and people get sick from ingesting the seafood that has it but he noticed that he noticed that he would be like get this burning sensation near it so would avoid like the lake shore and this was around the time of the outbreak and then like two other strange clues um one of them was he started noticing like outdoor what he called plumes of stuff that made him feel bad and i think this is a new concept because he knew that he reacted to mold in buildings but this idea of there being similar like outdoor toxins that were potent was a little more um unknown and to this day like people haven't like sampled them or figured out what they are even though a lot of people experience this but he, he noticed this in the sewers especially um he said he would like walk by a certain sewer on a certain street and there'd be like a plume of bad air and then he would like have to avoid that area and he made himself like a little map So cut back to, you know, he's bedridden and he's put some of this stuff together. And to interject, I'm telling this story because this is kind of the person who's at the center of a lot of, I think, deep knowledge about this illness because most of the survivors from that outbreak are either dead or just so sick they can't talk still. This is like, besides the two doctors who have, you know, different ideas on what happened, this is like the one person, lucid person who was there at this point in history. Um, so it sheds light on why I did what I did and it, it, a lot of information about the illness. Um, so he, you know, noticed the algae, he noticed the bad houses he knew his house was bad he would like crawl out to like get air and so slowly he got himself from like bedridden to more the equivalent of housebound being able to walk around a little just by moving to different parts of Tahoe by like crawling out of his house getting fresh air getting into an RV he had and just getting to like a different section of Incline Village and so he made this like map 
that I can actually show you the interesting um, of like the mm -hmm. bad zones, almost like a little, there's a topographical map and then like different lines of very bad, uh, okay, good, among a, like a very small area. So he's, he's like sensing these like small shifts even within the town from experience. And so he got himself from like bedridden to housebound, but you know, being moderately ill still sucks. So he was still not happy and he went to these doctors in town that, you know, like I said, discovered, sort of discovered this and were treating CFS. And their view was basically it's a virus, but we just haven't found which one it is yet. And they were doing lots of studies on the immune system. They even took some brain biopsies, MRIs, and they had Eric as a patient. And he, I think, tried some of their meds. But the big thing that was helping someone was a trial for an immunomodulatory drug called Amplogen. Um, and they offered it to Eric. Uh, and he said he was, unfortunately, because of having gotten slightly better and not being bedridden anymore, was not eligible to get it for free. So it would have cost something like 50000 a year. And he said, I can't afford that, so I'm just going to try avoiding mold even like more hardcore. So he, at that point, had just been like moderately avoiding mold by staying out of really bad buildings and going to different parts of Tahoe. I think he also got really like depressed about the whole situation as many of us do and was just like I'm going to kill myself but I like I want to have like one good time with my family before this so he went to Death Valley on a camping trip with them and I think despite uh despite knowing some stuff intuitively about mold I don't think he had the idea that the desert would be that much better yeah, and uh, went on this camping trip. He said he was going to kill himself after this. And he went there and he was just, you know, like walking more and more every day, hiking up mountains, not crashing um, after exertion. So he canned the, he put aside the plan to kill himself and he kept doing this. And he started off camping and then he made himself a um, custom RV with no wood or fiberglass insulation. So he was trying to make it as mold free as possible with just foam insulation and, and aluminum and, and steel struts or something. And he basically used this as a camper and, and started realizing that he would react to very small amounts of like uh, mold, even like cross-contamination. If he went into a bad building for a while, it would get stuck to his clothes and he'd have to change his clothes. So he, he kind of used this vehicle as like this containment unit, unit or, you know, like a, a clean room. And after like, I think six months of, doing this lifestyle of spending a lot of time in the desert, but also parts of the high Sierras or Eastern Sierras. He um, literally had gone from bedbound and then housebound to hiking Mount Whitney. Um, 
which is his whole claim to fame, sort of like he talks about it. But he talks about it because he said he thought if he proved that he could do that, doctors would immediately be interested in studying it because those levels of remissions are very rare in this illness. And sometimes people do seem to have spontaneous remissions, but they're not, they're fragile remissions. They don't, you know, someone will be like, I'm in, I'm doing better. And then they overdo it a little and they go back. But this is someone who, you know, went back every year and hiked Mount Whitney like yearly for like, you know, the past 15 or 16 years after recovering like it's a it's a remission that held he basically said that after that like he i mean he basically eased into living a normal life like working in places and he could stand he could stand to be in bad buildings or whatever as long as he had this clean sleeping space in the desert his uh custom trailer so he went back to like he essentially lives and works but oh yeah so he discovered that these tiny amounts of this stuff really hurt him and discovered that he yeah. had to like do essentially bioweapon level decontamination protocols to deal with it and then he had, he also observed that the other thing that connects to like his army training was he said that they were talking about a neutron bomb and they never deployed it, obviously. Um, but that his army supervisors told him that if you set this off, it it's more like low level than atomic bomb. It won't glass a city, but it will make an entire population sick. But what will happen is a bunch of different opportunistic viruses or whatever or bugs will make these people sick. Um, and no one will point to the original source of the immune issue. Everyone will just argue about what virus it was. Like doctors will argue about, was it a virus? Is it mass hysteria, et cetera, if you did this on a population level? And he felt like that played out on a smaller level in Tahoe. This thing, some agent, disabled people's immune systems to some extent, and to this day, basically, people are still virus hunting, trying to find the original pathogen that caused this issue, like arguing over what pathogen caused it or, you know, what identifiable thing caused it when there's an upstream cause of all of it. Um, you know, this is was him figuring out his experience, figuring out how to get well and figuring out that mold essentially affected him but the the things that i think started to formulate the theory that this wasn't like ordinary mold were there are a couple things one was um a few weeks before like that outbreak um really hit hard um there was some worker um like waste management worker who came into a bar in Tahoe and it's like we just had this awful solvent spill go like in the street and like go into the sewers and it's terrible it's gonna like fuck things up and then like it's just like unmentioned and then there was also a lot of cloud seeding being documented done by like ski resorts in the area 
um, to increase snow and not like some government conspiracy. It was just, you know, illegal cloud seeding was common at that point. And they use um, some kind of metal nanoparticles that they like just spray out to make their clouds heavier and um, to make them heavy to the point where they dislodge their precipitation and um and then like the the third thing that's really weird um and i can forgive anyone for thinking this is out there but um eric talked about how the neutron bomb supposedly people said if it went off that the lightning in the atmosphere would be different afterwards and would like branch a lot more rather than just like thick straight ish lightning bolts um because of like the ionization the ionizing radiation in the air and like charged particles in the air and he said he saw this happen in tahoe the lightning change i mean this is kind of that sounds out there but this is kind of like an autistic loner who was kind of like a naturalist in a lot of ways and just spent a lot of his time before getting sick and then after recovering just hanging out in the trails around that area like in the mountains above there doing things like watching the lightning so there those are like some of the supposed clues and then just because of the there's this knowledge gap where in scientific studies mold isn't shown to exhibit necessarily definitively like the level of kind of neurological effects that this illness has in humans in relevant doses that it would be inside a house. But that is why Eric had this theory that there's, you know, something else plus the mold. And his idea was that nanoparticles of some kind, probably metallic nanoparticles were combining with mold spores making them more pathogenic that this had happened maybe because of cloud seeding but from what i read and to elaborate on that could probably happen from I mean, just so many kinds of pollution producing nanoparticles car exhaust um you know lots of stuff his thought was it doesn't matter the material so much like the size matters because the surface energy means it interacts with the immune system in a different way. A nanoparticle could also cross the blood-brain barrier, all of this. And going to say that when I first heard that, I, I definitely thought it was outlandish. And and then I found a, an article from 2018 um, in the journal PNAS, um, which is a journal that has a high impact factor, meaning it's like a respected scientific journal. It's like one of the best. It basically was validating this, talking about how fungi, fungal spores and nanoparticles like combined and how they were actually more uh, pathogenic. Something that really sounds outlandish, but it's like, this is published in 2018. It's, the title is Nanoparticle Decoration Impacts Airborne. Yeah fungal pathobiology decoration meaning like that stuff sticks to the spores it, you know i'm not going to read the whole thing obviously but the 
what they say about the significances. In this work, we demonstrate that nanoparticles rapidly assemble in spores under physiologically and ecologically relevant conditions. We provide in vitro and in vivo evidence that nanoparticle coating the clinically most relevant airborne fungal pathogen, Aspergillus fumigatus, can affect the pathobiological identity and fate of both fungal spores and nanoparticles. Our findings suggest that nanoparticle coating of bioaerosols may be relevant for ecology and human health. And then I have this study memorized in terms of the methodology. I just wanted to read that part. But what's crazy about it is how thorough it is. I mean, this is not, you can find a million low quality, low powered studies um, that show that something happens like in the lab, but they do both. They show that nanoparticles will stick to the end of fungal spores in the lab, but then they sample uh, fungal spores from construction sites and find that they have nanoparticles coating them. So ecologically relevant, relevant to the real world. And then yeah. they find that these nanoparticle coated spores compared to fungal spores of the same species not coated with nanoparticles produce a more inflammatory immune response in mice. So yeah, I mean, it's in mice, it's not humans, but that's still an impressive study design. It's hard to explain the dynamics of these kind of studies, but that is like a highly replicable study. Like it's not just lab work, but it's also something that a researcher could uh, apply to say any specific construction site without having to transpose specific lab information and details, I guess, discrete details onto the nature of their analysis. For a lot of people, as, as you've kind of said, the initial research into this stems from trying to find anecdotal similarities in symptoms rather than trying to initially pin down some cause. But that's what I found most, most fascinating about that study is that it, it doesn't even deal with symptoms necessarily at the onset, although it does get into the symptoms, but just this, this really kind of technical aspect about particles, like the way that particles actually work together and synthesize under specific circumstances has so many implications even beyond MECFS, I think. I think that the takeaway from that is like, you know, I've showed that to people and like the reflexive skeptic response is like, no one, no one will be like that article shit because it's well-designed and it's also in a really well-respected journal, but reflexive skeptical response is like, well, it's, it's one study and it's in mice and it, you know, just shows that, you know, you know, the nanoparticles plus spores are a little different, but it's like, I mean, the big takeaway for me is there's been fucking 20, 30 years of research on like mold and debates about mold, mold, mold. And no one's thought, why don't we take a sample of just like whatever's in the environment rather than studying like pure mold spores, you know, like what, does, uh, you know, like they took a sample from a construction site and I don't know how they got this hypothesis. I'd like to point out, these are not MECFS researchers. I emailed them and yeah. I begged them to contact the Open Medicine Foundation, like the top MECFS research institute. 
because it's like the people doing some ecological research or microbiology that might be most relevant to MECFS are unfortunately not even aware it's a disease. These people are just looking at this. I don't know what their background is. I think some German research team, but they're looking at the pathobiology of mold and particles. But to me, it's mind blowing that no one's thought before recently, let's, because there's so much hotly debated stuff about how neurotoxic mold is, how pathogenic it really is. No one's thought, let's, let's study it as it is in the environment. And this is what I'm saying about like complex second order kind of cascading effects. And this is just the beginning, but I use this as an example because I, you know, if you just talk to some like autodidact guy with 200 followers on Twitter who has a kind of autistic mannerism, say, said he is in the army and that nanoparticles combined with mold are causing this chronic illness and that no one's listened to him for 30 years sounds like a nutcase. And then you read, then you like look at this shit and it's like, Holy fuck. I mean, I think this guy's just like, I don't know, maybe I do believe in like IQ and psychometrics because I don't think like I could have figured that out. I I can't really speculate about that, but, it comes down to a, a specific set of motivations that cause someone. No one's an autodidact in a vacuum. There's there's almost always a motivating factor. The fact that someone taught themselves information that you know normally has to be sort of top down learned information is usually tied to a specific personal motivation that doesn't in any way decrease its legitimacy, but in terms of presentation, it makes it a lot harder to sort of view it as an outsider and say, oh, this is sound, you know, in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Well, I'm not saying it's not motivated, but like, I will say that there's, that almost everyone with MECFS realizes that they have to try and find their way out of this maze and become autodidacts, but most of us don't have reached that level of just like coming up with a novel theory um, that is just, that is prophetic. Also, I want to say that he, he said something in like 1986 when he got asked to be a kind of patient zero for defining the CFS syndrome. He said he felt like he should say something like auspicious and or like something. And he said, um, I'm becoming increasingly inexorably sensitive to mold. And um, I feel that if things keep going this way, there will be millions like me. It, it just essentially had this vision of like hordes of people kind of made homeless and made ultra sensitive to their environmental toxins and made very sick by them. And no one in the MECFS research field really heated that. A lot of patients have this idea that since there are some doctors and researchers that don't think we're crazy and I think there's a biological cause that we have to like kind of kiss their feet and not like argue with them at all, essentially, which is <laughs> like the mindset of someone who's been abused. And Eric didn't have that 
um, mindset. Like he argued furiously and he still does. He goes to the Stanford conference on MECFS every year, holds up a sign with stuff about the history of the disease and says that he demands them to look into this environmental stuff and their research and they never do. That's one study. There, there's some other interesting ones about nanoparticle mold interactions. There are interesting ones about just nanoparticles effect on health in general. That stuff isn't pretty either. I mean, I think the thing is that particle size determines how it interacts with your immune system. It determines if it can get into your tissues without being discharged easily. Obviously, if you like, you know, have like a, a grain of dirt in your tissue, it like the immune system can recognize it and like, I don't know, insist it or I don't know how it normally expels, but like a nanoparticle that's very small and that's tricky. Um, I don't think that the environmental changes that will make everyone really sick in like 10 years are all going to be just from the combination of mold and metallic nanoparticles but it has followed eric's prediction a little bit like there are a lot of people who don't even see themselves as part of the mecfs community because they haven't gotten help from doctors and they just essentially started doing eric's version of mold avoidance there are probably at least tens of thousands of people living like this, um, essentially kind of like homeless, desperate, getting some relief, but um, having a difficult lifestyle and tons of people getting second. Uh, like I think the numbers for MECFS have skyrocketed, although that's hard to know because I don't think that thorough epidemiology was done early on. I just would guess that. And it's it's crazy how many people I just have incidentally met who have either MECFS or who have other ailments that have been very responsive to environmental changes. One of my friends from my first year at Hampshire who dropped out after two years due to depression, I talked to when I was sick and he was a little bit not in a mean-spirited way, disbelieving, but like he thought there was like some role of the subconscious. Anyway, he told me to like do DMT or ayahuasca or something. Anyway, within like a little while, he was telling me about how he had these awful gut issues and was just floundering in in uh, Westchester where he lived. And I referred him to the doctor who told me to go to the Grand Canyon and. Um, now he's living in Taos and he's like, man, you saved my life, etc. Um, he could drive himself. He didn't have permanent damage to his ligaments like I, I do. And he made it out to Taos, just started working a job, found housing, and is now just like not perfect health-wise, but like not waking up every day wanting to kill himself like he, and not having the terrible level of gut issues that he did in New York. Like I don't think he could see himself living any other way like mm -hmm. and he went from kind of like not understanding my illness to being directly affected by this and like a full believer to the extent of making kind of extreme life changes
besides Hampshire, the other place I was when I was sick was my house in Vermont. And it's in this tiny town called Kirby, Vermont, that is maybe has 500 people, solely dirt roads, one town hall and a dump. That's the extent of the size of the town. So on the same road as me, like maybe like less than a mile up, um, I found out, you know, years later that some girl of the same age had gotten sick in the same way and the general same severity in that house, just like up the road, then talked to her online and realized that. And I was just like, huh, just like, cause this is just this fucking tiny ass town, 500 people, yeah. um, five families on the street. And, um, this disease is less than 1% of the population, especially the severe form. Also told you I meant someone else at the infusion center I was going to from the Northeast Kingdom, really severe MECFS and also connective tissue disorder. She She's on a feeding tube, very severely ill. And then this guy, Ron Davis, who I've talked about, the head of the Open Medicine Foundation, whose son is perhaps the sickest person with this illness, like in existence, said in a speech, we were looking for patients for the severely ill patient study in the Bay Area, and we found four severely ill patients, unbeknownst to us, on the same block as um, our son, and in Palo Alto, which is like, you know, tech capital of the world. Yeah. Just like disgusting place. Um, I think that MECFS outbreaks, which were a historical thing, didn't exactly go away. We just became more atomized and we don't recognize when there's a geographical cluster. But if you start talking to people about where they got sick, there's there's a lot of clues there. You know, if I ever recover, I'd like to make it like a, you know, make it into the bleeding edge, make it into cutting edge science. Because I think like this is the the next kind of paradigm shift of science is not just is is conceiving of environmental factors not just as like something we think about sometimes in like exceptionary uh exceptional uh man my brain is fine exceptional cases like cancer and not something that we just think of as in terms of long-term exposure but something that's like basically going to become the determining factor in almost all chronic illnesses or even terminal and acute ones.